Good morning, Grace Life. Always a great time of worship, Kyle. Thank you for leading us. And I uh, just wanted to do a shout out, if I could, to the tech team. <laughs> you know, when I go up there in the morning, they're up there raising their hands. So I went in there, they had three cameras set up. So those of you online, if you see a little bit something different with the camera, let us know because we are trying new cameras, trying to improve that, um, our, the online experience. So let us know, drop us a line, send us uh, an email or something, text us someone. Um, and they're just, they're always here. They're like the first ones here along with the worship and they've got everything set up and you just don't see all the work that they're doing. So thank you guys. Thank you for your service to the Lord. And a shameless plug to the congregation. If you have any interest or any ability for tech or sound, we're always looking for people to help. Uh, always looking for people to be on the worship team. Always looking for people to teach the kids in the back. So, and the great thing about Grace Life is we want to cultivate an environment. If you get up there and you start messing around with it, and you're like, ah, I don't think I'm cut out for this. We'll be like, okay, man, go. You know, we'll find another place. So we, we're not, we're not going to peg you there and say, no, this is what you must do. It's just, you know, those guys, they're working hard, and, you know, we want to give them a time, uh, you know, an option to have a weekend off and just come and sit in here and not be worried about if something's going to go haywire up there. So, but appreciate you guys. Thank you for your service to the Lord. And as always, our Q, uh, QR code is up here if you want to uh, click on that, and it'll bring you to the scripture. And who, as you turn there, if you scroll to Romans chapter 6 or flip there, I mean, who knew that scrolls were going to make a comeback, right? <laughs> My goodness. Wah, wah, wah. But we do welcome you in the name of Jesus, and we always want you to remember that if you are out there and you mourn, you need comfort to all those who are weary and you need rest, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and need strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and whoever else will come, Grace Life Church opens wide her doors in the name of Jesus Christ, and we offer you welcome. And I just wanted to share something with you guys before we read the scripture, so as you're turning to uh, Romans chapter 6, just a really great section of scripture that we're going to be studying, and... Um, I just had something happen. I talked to Tommy, and I asked if I could come up here and share. So I had a dream. So don't, don't get afraid. But I just wanted to preface that. Was, um, I believe, you know, in the book of Acts, how it talks about um, when the Holy Spirit poured out, was poured out, it said, um, and it shall come to pass in the last days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And all my maidservants and men servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So I wanted to talk about the dream portion. And the bad thing about that, it says your old men will dream dreams. So it seems like I'm crossing over into that old men category. I'm not the young men that uh, will see visions. So anyways. But when the Bible talks about a dream and it's from the Lord, it usually prefaces, it doesn't call it a dream, it calls it a vision of the night. If you look in Acts, you'll see that Paul, it's twice, the Lord gave him a vision. It said in the vision of the night, he had, he dreamt that someone from Macedonia was saying, come over here and tell us the gospel. And he said, well, I guess the spirit of God wants me to go to Macedonia. So they went over there and they started preaching the word and had a great revival. And there was another time where I guess Paul was afraid in Acts 18, 19, 10, uh, 18 verses 9 through 10, said he was afraid. And in a vision of the night, he said the Lord appeared to him and it said, do not be afraid, but just go on speaking. Do not be silent. I am with you. No one will attack you. No one will harm you. 
I have many in, uh, in this city that are my people. So every time that there's a dream, it's encouragement. It's, it's, God wants to encourage you through it. So I just want to tell you my dream and how I feel like it can encourage us as a congregation and how it ties into the scripture that we just maybe coincidentally or not coincidentally are just studying this week. So as many of you know, my father passed away late 2020 and my mom passed away 2014. And a man that was a spiritual authority in my life, he really, he really told me more about the gospel and built a foundation of biblical understanding in my life. And that was in the early 2000s, around 2001, 2, and 3. And he passed away in about 2004 or 5. And I just had this dream, and all three of them, all the, all the people that I knew and that I dearly loved were in this dream. And I knew that they were all passed away. They'd been, they all died in the Lord. And... Uh, I was at work, which I worked with my dad until he passed away, and he was at work, and all the customers were coming in just like a regular day that I would remember from any time, and they were just chit-chatting back and forth, and I'm just standing there, and I'm looking at all these people that I knew that were passed away, and I was, you know, having a conversation with myself in the dream, just like, how is this happening? These people are dead. How did... They are buried in the Osteen Cemetery. One of them is cremated. How did this get through the embalming process? And we had a funeral for them. We put them in the ground. I witnessed it. Why are they walking around alive? I don't get this. So I was having all this conversation in my head, I guess, or in my dream. And I woke up, and I told my wife about it, and we just started chit-chatting about it. And, of course, it brought us back to Romans 6 that Tommy preached on a couple weeks ago. He said, how can you who are dead to sin live any longer therein? And we started just discussing that. It is so difficult for our, us to wrap our heads around the idea that we are dead to sin and how it has no pull on us anymore, but sin is not dead to us. It's always trying to get us back. You know, the, in um, Genesis it says sin's always crouching at the door wanting to take... Uh, take take you over and <laughs> put you in bondage and so I just wanted to share that I don't know if it's freaky to you or not but I just think that it really tied into everything that we were talking about and just I think that this chapter in Romans 6 is going to be so crucial to every Christian out here listening right now to having a victorious Christian life I mean understanding what Jesus has done for you is one thing and actually believing it and walking it is the next. And understanding that you are dead to sin, that just as Jesus died, that you were in his place, you were dying with him. So you're dead to that old world, you're dead to that old lifestyle. Even if you're still tempted to live it, you're still dead to it. That's what the scripture says. So as I said all that, let's read um, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection like this, like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives unto God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present yourself members to sin as in instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought back or have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Amen. Do you believe it? Amen. Thank you, Cliff. Well, good morning, Grace Life, and good morning, everyone watching online. My name is Tommy Clayton, and I am the lead pastor here at Grace Life, and I'm so thankful that you came today to worship with us, to study God's Word with us, to fellowship with us, and of course, our prayer and our, our hope and our expectation is that we come here and we bring all of ourselves in here. We don't check out at the door, we don't leave our problems and our conflicts and our difficulties and our struggles out there, we bring them in here with us so that we can lay them out and have God give us the help that we need for change, for transformation. I, I would venture a guess that everyone in this room and everyone watching online would agree with this statement, we need power. Am I right? <laughs> Do you need power? Do you need power to obey God, to resist temptation, to love difficult people in your life? to say no to the seductive sirens of sin? Do you need power to pursue holiness, the Bible says in Hebrews, without which no one will see the Lord? Do you need power to stay devoted, to stay true, to stay faithful? Yes, you do. We need power. Nobody would disagree with that. We all need it. We all need motivation to live right. Here's where the breakdown happens. So often, where we think we're getting that power is somebody cracking a whip or somebody waving a stick or even somebody dangling a carrot. And listen, those things, pragmatically speaking, they work. They work, but they work short-term. It's not a long-term solution. It's not really a solution at all. It's, uh, it may help you suppress one idol and then another, like that, that pop-up mo game that you play at the fairgrounds, right? It's just going to replace... This problem with this problem over here, it's not going to do heart transformation. It's not going to get to the root of the issue. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 12, and he said, When an unclean spirit leaves its host, it travels over dry places seeking rest, seeking refuge. And finding none, it goes back to its original host, and it finds it, finds it swept and clean and put in order. And so it goes back and gets what? You remember this? It gets seven more unclean spirits, more wicked than itself, and the last state at that person's house is worse than the former. In other words, things will not get better just with you sweeping up and tidying up and doing a switcheroo. That's waving a stick, that's cracking the whip, that's dangling a carrot. We need real power that transforms our heart, that galvanizes us to go out there and leverage our life for the kingdom. We need real power from God. So that our life is attractive, so that it's holy, so that it's provoking questions for outsiders and unbelievers. You know, the early church was like that. 
It says in, in Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 2 that all fell upon everyone that was looking at these people that were, you know, just the day before, pagans. And they came to Jerusalem and they heard they came under the power of the gospel. The Holy Spirit came upon them and they lived transformed lives. And unbelievers scratched their head and they said, what the heck happened to them? And the answer is the gospel, Christ, resurrection power. That's what happened. So Paul is talking about this in chapter 6, that passage that Cliff just read for us. I may have bitten off more than I can chew trying to, trying to get to all 14 verses. I know we're not going to do that. If we make it to verse 11, I'll be a happy man. We're going to take our time in this chapter. Paul has been prompted to, uh, to talk about our new status and he is absolutely determined not to undervalue what has happened to us when Christ died on the cross, when he rose from the grave, when he ascended to heaven. He is absolutely committed to helping us understand what happened to us when that happened. So I got three points today, real quick, and we'll be on our way. Three points, and I'm calling this the ripple effect. The ripple effect meaning what happened at Calvary, what happened with the empty tomb, and the empty cross had a ripple effect. It comes down and it meets us, it hits us, it does something to us here and now in 2022 in Central Florida. When we need it most, when we need God's power, we have it because of that event. So this is the ripple effect, and there's three points. Number one, how you think matters. I could even say what you think matters. And we're talking about doctrine, theology, belief, faith. Second point is you are united. That's the very word that Paul uses here we'll talk about in a few minutes. And the third is that you are free. You are free. Man, if, we, if, if God will help us wrap our minds around the truth and the reality of that statement, that will make all the difference in the world to how you and I face temptation, face the seductive call of sin. You know, Hebrews says that sin so easily ensnares us, and the reason that it does is because we forget these things that Paul is talking about in chapter 6. So, point number one, how you think matters. How you think matters. And I, I make that point in this passage because all throughout this, you're going to see these electric words like, we know. Do you not know? Paul uh, starts with a question, and it's a rhetoric, rhetorical question. You know, rhetorical questions, they really, they don't require an answer. The answer is buried into the question itself. And they're really powerful literary devices. They're very provocative. For example, I could say, how in the world do you expect to lose weight if you eat a pound of chocolate on Valentine's Day, right? What's the answer? You don't. You don't need me to tell you that. You don't need me to, to tease that out. You get it. So his, his provocative rhetorical question was, so should we remain in sin? Should we continue to sin? This grace is so wonderful. It's so radical. It's so amazing. We have an earned righteousness, right? We receive it. Excuse me. <laughs> We do not have an earned righteousness. We have a received righteousness. It's God's gift to us. He earned it. He secured it. He accomplished it. And he gave it to us as a gift. Therefore, we didn't do anything. We did the sinning. He did the saving. It's a wonderful arrangement. We'll just keep on sinning so that God gets more glory. And uh, Paul says no. Not only does he say no, he says no in the strongest way possible in Greek. Not only is that not an option, it's repulsive to him. It's unthinkable to him. That would be like saying, hey, listen, I know we checked into the hospital, uh, and they did an amazing job of getting us better. <clears throat> In order to honor the hospital staff and to thank the doctor, let's just stay here, man, and let them keep caring for us. That would show them how amazing our treatment is here. Is that the point of a hospital? 
I mean, I know there may be some questions <laughs> today. Does the hospital want you to leave? But uh, politics aside, the point of a hospital is what? To discharge you with a clean bill of health so that you can go out there and be healthy and be well and be a productive, flourishing, thriving member of society again. The doctor will be repulsed if you said that. The doctor will say, look, bro or sis, if you want to honor my skill as a doctor and a physician, get out there. Jump around. Show people you're cured. You're healed. We did it. We get the glory. Don't stay in here. Don't stay in the sick bed. We're not honored if you do that. So that's what Paul is getting at uh, in this chapter. It's, it's a question that's rhetorical that he's kind of answering in the first 10 verses here before he ever gets to a command. Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And he says, certainly not. And then he says this, how can we who died to sin, past tense, live any longer in it? Rhetorical question. He says, that is ridiculous. That's crazy. That's insane. If you've died to something, then you're no longer answerable to it. You're no longer under its authority. You're no longer under its control. You're no longer under its dominion and its power. There's a separation that's happened. You've been cut away from it. And he says, that's why it's so ridiculous and crazy and sinful to think that way. And so here's the first point. Paul is reminding them, you know this. So helping people understand their new status, their new identity as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, he's telling them what you believe and how you think matters. It matters, in fact, more than what you do. You guys understand that Romans is all about the gospel. And it's all about, because of what Jesus did, how does that impact me? How's that supposed to impact me? 16 chapters. Have you ever thought about that? Why 16 chapters? Should it take 16 chapters? Can he give me just one chapter of a grocery list to do? Like, hey, now that you're a Christian, go out and do this. Bam, 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 bam. Like, chapter 12 would be great. That's really all we need, right? Renew your mind and uh, don't repay evil for evil and overcome uh, evil with good and a whole other list. There's like, I think, 40-something-odd commands in chapter 12. But the first six chapters... There's not one imperative, not one command until you get to verse 11. And the command itself is, remember, <laughs> it's, it's the command to think, to reflect, to ponder, to consider, to reckon. Isn't that amazing? Most of the first half of Romans is all about how you think about yourself now that you're a Christian. Does that strike you as, as odd and different? Let me, let me put it a different way. Because if we don't get this point, you won't get anything else I say today. Do you realize that after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's the narrative, that's the story about Jesus, that's the storyline. He was born, he grew up sinless, he had a, a ministry, he, he was crucified at 33 years old, he rose from the grave, and he commissioned his apostles, go and spread this message everywhere, the end. Do we really need anything other than that? We know all about Jesus' message, we know what he said was true, what he did was true, we know what our response should be to repent, to believe, to follow him, to be a disciple. Why do we need anything else in the Bible? Why does it have to be so complicated? Why do we have 21 epistles in the whole book of Acts? Have you ever thought about that? Do you know that the 21 epistles are written to you and me as believers? They're written to believers. They're written to the church. Why is that? Why do we need that? Why do we need more instruction other than the four gospels? Do you know why? Do you know what the answer is? Because we still tend to think in old patterns of living and old patterns of thinking. And Paul knows that. One of Paul's favorite phrases is in Christ. 
73 times he uses that phrase. Did you know that? Man, it's a chore to count those things too. 73 times. What's that mean? It means you're, you're a different person now. Your status has changed. Your identity has shifted. Something happened to you because of what Jesus did. You are united to him, and that changes everything. It's got to start with how you think, what you believe, what you know. That's why Paul is appealing to our minds. That's why chapter 6 is chock full. I mean, if, if I were Paul, i got to be honest, if I were Paul, I would be tempted to just get right to verse 11 and say, hey, this is what you got to do. In verse 12 and 14, uh, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Stop it. <laughs> Stop letting sin have dominion over you. Just don't do that anymore. Does that work, though? Does that work with you? Stop it. Stop being anxious. Stop being afraid. Stop yelling at your kids. Stop being self-centered. I could go on all day. And i got to be honest with you, most religions do just that. They do that. They rip the first half of Romans out of their Bible. And I want to tell you, all they're doing is waving a stick. That's all they're doing. Or dangling a carrot. I'll give you an M&M if you obey God. <laughs> I don't know why it's a carrot. I mean, we're not rabbits. I don't even like carrots. Do you? Anyway. What you think matters. Doctrine and theology is what Romans is all about. It's what it's all about. Something happened, something historic, an event happened at the cross. And because of, of your union with Jesus, you in some strange, and it's okay to use this word mystical. That's what theologians say. Calvin would say this mystical union with Jesus. You were there and you died with him and you were raised with him. And that's why we have this beautiful ordinance that's a picture of that called baptism. All the language for that is embedded in this sacred ordinance called baptism. Therefore, I told you last week, as Baptists, we always say, therefore, being buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. That's a picture of what happened to you. New life. So something that happened 2,000 and something odd years ago, the ripple effect comes to us here now. That grants us a power. Now, I'm going to do something odd. I don't want to freak you out, okay? Cliff already said, I hope you're not freaked out by the, by the dream thing. Hey, if, if a sermon will give somebody a dream, that's better than giving them a nightmare, I guess, right? As long as these things line up with, with Scripture. So, um, you know I love Lord of the Rings. You guys know that, right? It's not anywhere near where the Bible is. You know that too. I just like the book. I think it's well written. And it's clean. There's no sex in it. There's no cursing. There's no nudity. Wh where do you get that today in 2022? Even the movies, they're clean too. And it's so chock full of helpful themes and illustrations, I think, that help us understand some of the things that Paul is talking about here. So... With that being said, <laughs> you know the whole storyline of the Lord of the Rings, right? There's this fellowship, and they get busted up, and there's just two hobbits left, Frodo and Samwise Gamgee, and they are on a quest to take this ring of power to the fires of Mount Doom and chunk it into the lava and destroy it. That's what their whole mission is. Everything else is in vain if that doesn't happen. So eventually, the fellowship of the ring breaks up, and there's like several different subplots, and I love that book, and I talk to a lot of people who have tried to love it, and they can't. And here's why. Because J.R. Tolkien breaks up the plot. And you're reading about Aragorn, Strider. You're reading about Gimli, the dwarf. And you're reading about Legolas, the elf. And then all of a sudden, you're back with Sam. And then you're with Treebeard and, and uh, Merrigan Pettibrook and all these other hobbits. You're like, what in the world is he doing? He's showing you that now, now, now their missions have kind of split up. But the one main overarching mission is what is going to happen on Mount Doom. But there's something else that's, that's going on below Mount Doom in the field of Cormallon. 
And that is, there's this battle between the host of Sauron, the evil dark lord, and the rest of Middle Earth. There's this battle. And you can see that picture there in the movie. Peter Jackson does a really good job. They're surrounded. This is like the end. They don't think Frodo is going to be successful. They're just trying to give him a fighting chance to get up there on that mountain and destroy the ring. So this is their last battle. They're, they're trying to buy some time. And you know in the movie, Aragorn turns around and he says, for Frodo. And they charge the host. Do you remember this? And what J.R. Tolkien is trying to show you is what's going on up here at Mount Doom matters down here. It matters tremendously. And so here's, here's the freaky thing I wanted to do. You, you get some of this in the movie, but the way that he writes this last part of the book, I wanted to read for you his description of what happens when the ring is destroyed and then how that impacts the battle down below. Because I believe that J.R. Tolkien had in mind what Paul's talking about here. So check this out. I'm just going to read a section. It's okay. I believe the Bible. I love the Bible. It's more important. But I, illustrations help us. God knows we're visual learners. So check this out. So they toss the ring in, and it, it, it's evaporated. The mountain shook. Here, let me, let me put up a different picture. Yeah, there we go. The mountain shook, and then all passed. Towers fell, and mountains slid. Walls crumbled and melted, crashing down. Vast spires of smoke and spouting steams went billowing up, up, until they toppled like an overwhelming wave. And its wild crest curled and came foaming down upon the land. The earth shook. The plain heaved and cracked, and Mount Doom reeled. And at that moment, all the host of Mordor trembled. This, this is the enemy, okay? The orcs and the goblins and all the ugly things. All the host of Mordor trembled. Doubt clutched their hearts. Their laughter failed. Their hands shook, and their limbs were loosed. The power that drove them on and filled them with hate and fury was wavering. Its will was removed from them. And now, looking in the eyes of their enemies, they saw a deadly light and were afraid. Then all the captains of the west cried aloud, for their hearts were filled with a new hope in the midst of darkness. The realm of Sauron is ended, said Gandalf. The ring bearer has fulfilled his quest. And as the captains gazed south to the land of Mordor, behold, their enemies were flying. That means running away. And the power of Mordor was scattering like dust in the wind. So the creatures of Sauron, orc or troll or beast spell enslaved, ran hither and thither mindless. And some slew themselves or cast themselves in pits or fled wailing back to hide in holes in dark, lightless places far from hope. I just love that. I love that because to me, as a reader and a, and a lover of Scripture, it reminds me, it's kind of an illustration, what Jesus did on Calvary, up on that cross, what happened at that empty tomb, what happened outside the city gates of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago had a ripple effect to me and how I relate to sin and how I relate to temptation. See, I was united to Christ when he did that. And when he died, I died with him. And I'm in another kingdom now. Sin no longer has dominion over me. I'm not under its domain any longer. I'm not under its authority. Its power has been broken. And the way he writes that, it's, it sounds almost similar, right? Who would have thought this little ring getting thrown into the lava at the top of Mount Doom? And then in the movie, there's this reverberation. There's like this sonic boom and this ripple that comes down, and you can actually see the enemies running away. I love the way they did that. They stayed really true to the book. So that's just an illustration that that helps you understand maybe what was going on there. Um, we need to hear the implications of Jesus' 
accomplished mission. We need 21 epistles. We need 16 chapters of Romans. We need to be reminded, hey, if you're not thinking or believing or reflecting or remembering the right, or the right way, you're going to forget how you're supposed to relate to sin. You're in a different kingdom. You're in a different domain. Its power has been broken because of your unity with Jesus Christ. In other words, this is what the New Testament is trying to do. Find at what point you are misunderstanding the gospel or you're misapplying the finished work of Jesus and bringing clarity and correction to that. You know, that's what I do when I counsel somebody. All I'm doing is looking for patterns and rhythms and habits in their life where they're not applying the finished work of Jesus. That's all I'm doing. That's all the New Testament is doing. That's why Paul is going to end this section in verse 11 with, uh, with the first verb. In the whole book of Romans, it's the first verb. And he says, consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. The first command is not just to jump up and get off the couch. Check this out. This is what Elise Fitzpatrick says. She says, here we are at the first command that Paul gives us, readers. Interestingly, it is not a command to hop up off our couches and get to work. It's a command to think, to remember, to realize. It is a command to remember and then to believe what we've remembered as we face our day. Does that make sense? What, she, what she's simply saying is, Paul is saying what you think and what you believe is equally, if not more important, than what you do. Because the one will drive the other. And if you're just doing empty behavior, that's not going to last. That's not going to last. You're going to be tempted, and you're going to forget, and you're going to have to, you're going to have to actualize what the gospel says, what the promises of the gospel are. And I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not saying you've got you to believe in yourself. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, you don't need to believe in yourself. <laughs> you know, this is not self-help. This is, this is not some book you can get at, at, uh, at Barnes & Noble about the new you. It's disconnected from Christianity, where, where it says, you know, you're enough, you're awesome. No, you're none of those things. Christ is. And this is reminding you that it's your unity with him that empowers you to live the victorious Christian life. And it's nothing else. So remembering is crucial to our spiritual health. That's why we have baptism. That's why we have the Lord's Supper. Jesus knew we needed tangible reminders that we can smell and touch and taste and feel. So he gave us those two ordinances. Because he knows they're powerful. That's why we have liturgy. That's why we have confessions and creeds. Come and see the truth of Christianity. Come and feel and handle and taste so that you can remember. So before, G before Paul ever tells us in verse 12, do not let sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, he's telling us think the right way, know the right things, remember the right things. And that's important because if you're like me, you just want to get past those first 11 verses, don't you? Are you like that? Or are you just like, look, get to the point. But all the epistles are written that way. I've mentioned this before. Every single epistle in the New Testament is chocked full of deep, rich, powerful gospel truth in the beginning. And only the second half, it gets to the therefore, this is how your life should change. If you think right, then you'll live right. If you believe right, then your life will change. That's the pattern of the New Testament. In other words, right living begins with, with right thinking. So, that's point one, okay? Uh, how you think, how you believe, what you know, it matters. It matters tremendously. And here's the second point, is that you are united. And that's really a flow out of point one. How are we supposed to think about ourselves? 
as new creatures in Christ. We're supposed to think in this way that you are united. Look at verse 3 with me. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? It's talking about the unity. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism and to death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then look in verse 5 here. For if we have been, what's that word? United with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now that word, united, is a really interesting word. It's actually a botanical word. It's a horticulture word. And it means gr to grow together. Isn't that amazing? It's, it's as if your life is bound up in the life of Christ. Everything that happened to him has happened to you. You were buried with him. You died with him. You were crucified with him. And that's in the heir's tense. Past, complete, done, fulfilled. It's not a process. It's an event, a punctiliar event that happened in the past that has ramifications and ongoing implications for the future. So it's a, it's a horticulture term. Um, we're, we, we live in the parachute capital of the world. Did you guys see all the parachutes yesterday? If you looked up in the sky and the land coming down, uh, just about every time somebody tandem jumps, they make it okay. Just about every time. Sometimes there's some bad news that happens. But this is like a tandem jump. If you jump out of, of if you jump out of an airplane, I almost said a parachute. If you jump out of an of a parachute, bye. If you jump out of an airplane. And you're in, is that, am I thinking about, is it tandem jumping? You're with somebody. You're wrapped up with them, right? You're connected. You're tethered to them. I can promise you, whatever happens to them is going to happen to you, for better or for worse. And that's the picture here. It's like you've grown together. I found this out the other day, and it absolutely blew my mind. Uh, I went to school in Southern California, and I always wanted to see the redwood, the coastal redwoods in Northern California. That I think they call them the sequoias, the big monstrous trees that can you see the little people in that picture there some of these trees get up to 20 feet in diameter at the base some of them grow well over 300 foot tall the redwood sequoias they're legendary people travel from all over the globe to see those things it's it's, it's amazing i never got to see them so i just have to look it up on google to see them but i found out something incredible how deep do you think the roots in these trees go guess how deep do you think <laughs> That's what I thought, too. I thought they would have, like, this spike root, like the palm trees in Florida. Because think about it, man. All the, all the hurricanes that come off that coast and the tornadoes and lightning that strikes. And recently, the wildfires that swept through the National Sequoia Forest, they thought all those trees were going to die. Guess what? They didn't die. They, they withstood it. Some of them were over 2,000 years old. Some of those trees were there when Jesus walked the earth. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? No, do you know their roots go from 3 to 12 feet? That's it. Does that blow your mind? It blows my mind. Do you know how they withstand all the elements and all the floods and all the fires and all the wind and the rain and the storms? Do you know how they do it? Because they have an interlocking. Hey, you let me talk. Who said that? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just messing with it. Hey, everybody wants to preach, man. <laughs> they, they have an interlocking root system. Their roots literally go, they do go hundreds of feet. It's just not vertical. It's horizontal. They grow hundreds of feet, and they lock together, and they merge with other redwood trees. And they share nutrients. They share strength. It's almost like if you were going to run and push down one tree, you would have to, to bowl over the entire forest. Isn't that incredible? They grow together. What happens to one happens to all of them. If one is strong, he can share his nutrients and his life-giving 
strength. And I, I know every illustration breaks down at some point. But that, that put me in mind of what Paul's saying here, especially since the Greek word is a horticultural term. It means they grow together. I mean, wouldn't you like to be like a cedar man and withstand the temptation and the sorrows and the despair and the doubt and just the seductions of this evil, fallen generation that we live in? And the Bible says you can and you should and you have to, you must. That's what this chapter is telling us. And the only way you can is to remember that you are united with Christ. You have died to sin. You've died to it. You were buried with him. You were there. You were crucified with him. That's what this is really talking about, these, uh, these cedars. There's a, there's a story that took place uh, in 1837. I know I'm reading a lot of stuff today. I know, I know that's boring, but I'm doing it because I think it's powerful. There's a story about a revival that happened in Eatington. Am I saying that right? Georgia? Eatington? Eatington, Georgia? In 1837, there was a big gospel meeting, and a lot of people came under the power of the gospel, and they got converted, and they held a baptism service right after the evangelism service. And there's a story about a young lady named um, Caroline. And I, I think we have lost some of the significance of baptism. I told you a few weeks ago, baptisms are funerals. It's not a sad funeral. It's a happy funeral because you're saying goodbye to the old me. You know, in this passage, he says, We're, the old man is dead. He died, he was crucified, he's gone. Wave goodbye. That's what a baptism is. That's why we put people under the water. There's no regenerative power in that water. It's a symbol, but it's a powerful symbol because it's, it's picturing for you what has actually uh, happened with Jesus. So this meeting was held in 1837, and a young lady by the name of Caroline, a teenager, she had came to Christ with a great deal of conviction, and she even said in her own testimony, I desire to be even more devoted to my Savior than I have ever been to the world. Standing by the edge of the river was her best friend, Julia. She had not believed the gospel. She had not repented. She was unconverted. Julia had been very close to Caroline in all kinds of worldly exploits. They had been partners in sin, so to speak. So this unsaved girl, Julia, was now watching the baptism of her closest friend, and somebody recorded the event, and it's a really eloquent way they wrote about it. So I want to read that. Check this out. So you can picture this event. The banks of the stream were lined with crowds of interested spectators. Julia of Monticello, Caroline's bosom friend and companion in her worldly course, seemed loath to leave her friend's side even for a moment and clung to Caroline until she reached the water's edge. A hymn was sung, and Pastor Mallory made a few remarks and offered a prayer. Then Pastor Dawson took Caroline by the hand and led her down the banks into the water. They had attained about half the desired depth, because baptizo means immersed, right? Remember we talked about that? That's why we don't, we have sprinkled here, but we typically immerse people. They had attained about half the desired depth when Caroline requested, please stop. And the pastor stopped. And she turned around, and she looked at those on the bank, and she waved her hand. And she said, farewell, young friends. Farewell, Julia. And the effect was electrical. The whole audience convulsed, and tears rained down from eyes unused to weeping. This is when unbelievers used to go to a baptism because they were curious. Upon coming up out of the water... Julia rushed forward to meet her friend, Caroline, embracing her and crying out in agonizing tones, Oh, Carrie, Carrie, you must not leave me. Mr. Dawson, pray for me. Mr. Mallory, pray for me. That's a moving story, isn't it? It's moving because a young girl saw her old self as dead. 
She's waving. Goodbye. Goodbye. The old me is, is going away. This is a funeral. This is the end. I'm not going to think the same way. I'm not going to believe the same way. I'm not going to live the same way. Everything about me is going to change. And that would most certainly mean the dynamic of her relationships and friendships. And I love that aspect of baptism that I think we've lost today. We're dead to sin. And this is what it means. We are dead to its guilt. So there's like a legal and forensic Sin no longer holds this power of condemnation over you. Paul will say that later in chapter 8. There is therefore now no what? Condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're united to Jesus, not guilty. You're righteous. You're declared blameless. Jesus took the, the penalty for your guilt. But not only are you dead to sin's guilt, you are also dead to sin's power, to sin's control, to sin's authority. Your unity to Jesus secured that. And that's our third and final point today is uh, not only are you united to Christ, that's, that's the way that you've got to think, okay? So first point is what you think matters, how you think matters. So how do we think? Second point, you think I'm united to Jesus. I belong to him. I am in Christ. That's my new identity. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower. I'm united to him. I belong to him. We've grown together. We're inseparable. His death, it will say here, was once for all, it's, it's irrepeatable. It's unrepeatable, it's unchangeable, it's irreversible. That's why I don't believe you can lose your salvation. You died to sin, it's over. You don't need to be converted again or baptized again. Even when I grew up, people would rededicate themselves all the time. That was really confusing to me. I didn't understand that. It's, uh, that's already happened. You've committed yourself to Christ. You died, the old you, the old man, and that word old man means worn out, useless, it's dead. There's a new you that's emerged, that's alive in Christ, new identity, a new life. You've been raised to walk in a newness of life. Everything has changed, a whole new power, a whole new obedience. So this is the last thing. You are no longer a slave. You are no longer a slave. And let me read the last few verses here, 7 to 11. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And here it is, friends. Here's the most important verse probably in Romans chapter 6, maybe in the entire epistle. Are you ready? Verse 11. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. First command in the book of Romans, think the right way about yourself. And, and I want to get in your kitchen a little bit today. Are you finding yourselves falling into old patterns of sinful living, old rhythms, old ways of thinking, old ways of responding to temptation and to pressure? Do you find yourself falling under that, that power and that control again? And I'm telling you, there is nothing that's more necessary for you and more powerful for you right now than to understand what the Holy Spirit is telling you in verse 11. You have got to, the word in Greek is legizomai. Here's what it means. It's an accounting term. It's a mathematical term. It means you need to recalculate. You have forgotten something that's vital and that's powerful and that's critical and that's necessary and essential. Is that you're different now. You are not under the jurisdiction of sin any longer. You're not in its domain. I mean, think of it this way. If I died and in the county of Volusia sent a bill to my house in my name for me to pay my water bill, I ain't got to pay it. <laughs> you know why? I'm not under their dominion. I'm not under their, 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 man. I'm not under their jurisdiction anymore. They no longer 
are authorized to demand that of me. I don't have to pay it. And guess what? I'm not going to pay it. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> Sarah will. <laughs> It'll fall on her. You don't owe anything to sin any longer. You have been joined to a new master, a much better master. It's okay when Jesus calls you his slave, doulos in Greek. That's a beautiful word for a Christian because you will never find a master as good as Jesus, ever. He will not exploit you. He will not abuse you. He will not hurt you. Jesus is holy, therefore, he can never sin. Therefore, he can never sin against you. So what risk do you stand in aligning yourself with Jesus? He can never sin against you or hurt you or harm you. Everything he ever does in your life will be for your benefit, for your blessing, for your improvement, for your change, for your transformation. That's what it's so easy to forget. But yet we fall back and we, and, and we say, I can't help myself. That's the wrong way to talk. If you're talking that way, that means you're thinking that way, which is going to lead you to live that way. And I hear that. And I know I have, I have sympathy. I have, I have compassion for people, man, who get stuck in this bondage lifestyle to an addiction, whether it's alcohol, drugs, uh, a pornography, anything. Our, our flesh so craves that kind of thing. It's so easy to fall back in that pattern. But we're not under its dominion. That, that power has been broken. Jesus broke it once and for all. So you do not have to obey sin and, and, and the impulses and the control that sin is trying to exude over you. That's so important for you to see from this, from this verse here. That's why Paul says, have you kind of, have you lost your mind? Are you crazy? How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? The whole point of grace was not just to forgive you, but to deliver you. You don't honor grace by saying, man, God gets a lot of glory, man. All this forgiveness he's given me. Look at this filthy life I'm living. I'm still his. He says he gets more glory when you break free from that because then you're using his power the way he intended for it to be used. So the rest of chapter 6 is going to talk more about it. I'm just, again, we're just, we're just wading into the shallow end of Romans chapter 6 right now. I know Matt made fun of me last week and said I'll eventually get to chapter 13 in 20 years, but... Maybe, he's, maybe it's true. I just don't, this is so important. I don't want to rip this page out of the Bible and just let's get to the good stuff. This is the good stuff. I hope this is not boring to you or mechanical. You know, Paul could have said, hey, look, didn't, didn't you know that we're, that we're dead to sin, so I don't need to say anything else. The end of Romans, you're dead to sin, so you're going to automatically obey. No, he felt the need to argue and to reason and to exhort us. And that's what preaching is, really. It's a reminder of the good news. The gospel's still good news, and we still need it. And I'm, what I'm trying to do today is lay out before you the implications of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So much has changed because of what he did. This is what it says. I think I read this verse last week. It bears repeating. He has delivered us from the domain. That's kingdom. He, he has delivered us from one jurisdiction to another, from the domain of darkness, and he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is what Paul says when he's preaching a sermon in Acts. I am sending you, God said to Paul, I'm sending you to open their eyes, talking about the Gentiles, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So you are leaving one kingdom, one dominion, one power, and you've been transferred into another, a much better one. Sin's no longer the boss of you. Did you say that when you were little, if you had a brother or a sister? You ever say that? You're not the boss of me. I said that to my brother, and he hit me anyway. <laughs> you know. I got another illustration for you, okay? <clears throat> I like reading books. I like reading all kinds of books. And I especially like reading books that get turned into movies. 
And there was a book I read by Stephen Ambrose called Band of Brothers. Don't know how you feel about that. I loved it. And I know, Chief, that probably has a special place in your heart because you, 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 uh, you lived in Hershey, Pennsylvania, where one of the main characters in that book, uh, Major Richard Winters, lived. But it's an incredible book about it's an incredible book about a company called Easy Company and, and their, the role that they played in D-Day and beyond. And, uh, but what I found really fascinating, the very beginning of this book, and all this is true, it all happened, and it was, uh, there was a HBO series that was, this book was turned into. There was a lieutenant, and his name was Herbert. His name was, uh, let me put it up here if I have it. I think I have it somewhere. I don't have it somewhere. Do we have it up there anywhere? I guess we don't. That's all right. Thank you. That's his name. He, he was the drill sergeant, so to speak. He was preparing these, this easy company and getting them ready for war. And like most drill sergeants, like most lieutenants whose job is to, to whip men into shape, he was, he was mean to them, he belittled them, uh, he embarrassed them, he humiliated them. But there was especially one cadet, one soldier named Richard Winters that he became jealous of. Richard Winters had this rising popularity, and it just really bothered this lieutenant. So he did everything he could to discredit him, to humiliate him, and uh, it didn't work. The, the men all flocked to Lieutenant uh, to, uh, Winters. And uh, so after the war happened, you can imagine uh, Richard Winters rose through the ranks. He went from a lieutenant all the way to a major. And uh, Herbert Sober was a captain. And those of you that know military rank, you know, here's a major up here, right? And here's a captain right here. So something really significant happened after the war. All the time when they were in basic training, uh, the, mean, the mean captain would go up to Richard Winters and he would, he would uh, salute him and make him salute him back. And one time, Richard Winters didn't want to. It was kind of like, I don't, I don't want you to be the boss of me. But he said, hey, you, you salute the rank, not the man. And he made him. Well, after the war, after Germany had surrendered, they met each other again. And this time, Richard Winters was a major. <laughs> And the mean captain that was at once over him had dominion, had authority, had power and control. Now he's outranked. And so it's a really powerful part in this series and in the book because he walked by him and he ignores him. And Richard Winter says, hey, captain, you salute the rank, not the man. And he was forced to turn around and in humiliation salute him. And basically what Major Richard Winters was saying is, you're not the boss of me anymore. You're not going to ever humiliate me ever again. I'm actually outranking you. You're under my jurisdiction now. You salute to me. You answer to me. I have the upper hand. I'm in control now. I give the orders. I give the commandments, and you render obedience. And I love that because that's a perfect, nah, it's not perfect. It's an illustration of what's happened. Sin is not in control anymore. You are not, listen, guys, you are not a victim anymore. You're not a victim you do not have to obey sin and all of its pleasure and all of its false promise and all of its lies. It's a terrible taskmaster. It would be like a person being released from prison and saying, man, I'm just so institutionalized. I don't know any other way to live. I want to go back and lock myself back in there. When you've got a key in your pocket, you don't have to be back there. Jesus died to release you. He set the prisoners free. He set the captives free. He set them at liberty. That's your new status. That's your new identity. That is a message of the gospel. That's how what happened 2,000 years ago comes right now to hit you in 2022. So to get in your kitchen, let me ask you a question. Is your life changing? 
Are you, are you saluting people that don't outrank you anymore? <laughs> are you putting yourself under the dominion and the power of control, the things that are destructive and harmful and are destroying your witness and robbing you of joy and, make, and ruining your life? You don't have to do that. God gave you power to resist that. That's what he wants you to do. And the way you can do that is by cherishing, cherishing, counting, crediting, reckoning, remembering, pondering, your new identity in Christ, that you are no longer a slave. We sang that song. I love that song. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I am a child of God. I, I belong to him now. He's my father. So, new kingdom, new king, new dominion, new power. Are you enjoying it? Are you, is, is, is that describing your life here and now? Because it should be. That's a powerful life. That's an attractive life. That's a, the greatest Defense for the gospel, the, God, the greatest apologetic you have for the gospel is a transformed life that will make the world sit up and take notice. And we're going to talk more about this next time. Man, I hope this made sense. A lot of crazy illustrations today, but I, I do that because I love you and I want to help you try and get some visual reminders and understanders of what Paul's trying to say here. Would you, would you just pause and pray with me? Let's just reflect on what we've heard. Lord Jesus, you, you are our Lord. You are our Master. We belong to you. Our lives belong to you. We want to surrender to you. We want to render obedience to you. We want to live a life of devotion to you. We want to walk with you. We want to walk in your word. We want our life to reflect our new identity. And we know we can't do that without your help, Lord. We can't do that without doing what the Apostle Paul called us to do today, to think the right way, to believe the right way, to remember the right things about what has happened to us. And so many other things could be said about that. I pray this message hasn't, be con- hasn't been confusing, Lord, or just repetitive. I know Romans seems like it gets repetitive, but it's for a reason, Lord. Every, no word is wasted. Every word is from you, inspired by your Holy Spirit. And I pray that your spirit would apply those words to our hearts today. That every man and woman and child in this building and, and watching from home online would consider um, the command that Paul gave them to consider themselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ. They are free. They are no longer slaves to sin. They have a new identity. They have a new power that's been unleashed and introduced into their life that God gets such glory from when we, when we walk in that power. So I pray you would help us to do that today, to grab hold of that. Maybe for the first time there's some people in this room, they'd never realized that. They never really understood what was accomplished when Jesus died and rose from the grave, how that can impact them now. And it's not just that God will forgive them of their sin. He will. He wants to. He wants to deliver them from their sin. It doesn't mean that we live in sinless perfection. Um, we still very much get seduced by sin and, and, and we stumble and we fall. And the Bible accommodates that. It tells us if we sin, we have an advocate. If we confess our sins, that Jesus will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful to do that. But Lord, we don't live habitually in unrepentant sin. He who is born of God does not sin any longer. It's not his practice. It's not his, his lifestyle. We are different. We are, are children of God. So help us to, to realize that today. And if anybody is here and stuck in a pattern of sin right now that's just destroying them, I pray that you would release them from it, Lord. You would deliver them. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, listen, I'm going to give one announcement before the other announcements come as you prepare your heart for this song of reflection. Along these lines, we, we don't have community groups this week. We put them on pause because we have a men and a women's gathering. Megan will tell you a little bit more about those in a few minutes. 
But I want you to know for the men who are going to gather, we're going to meet at my house. It's going to be Thursday night at 6.30. You can get the address on our website or come and ask me. We're going to talk about specific struggles that men face today, uh, maybe in, in powerful and accessible ways that they never had before in the history of the world. And uh, it touches all of us. All of us have struggled with that. And I, and I meet so many men that have just fallen victim to lust and to pornography. And uh, we're going to talk. I'm sorry if that makes you feel awkward if I'm saying that out loud. We've got a lot of different people in this room. But I want you to know there is help to be had. God, God does not want you to just wallow in that lifestyle. He has hope for you and help for you. And we're going to talk about that at the meeting. We're going to have a powerful testimony from one of our men. We're going to share a time of teaching together. And I think the women are going to do something that corresponds with that for women from what my wife is telling me. So you don't want to miss Tuesday night at 6.30 at Wendy Hart's house and Mark Hart's house, Mark Hart's house and Thursday night at 6.30 at our house. It's going to be along the lines of what Romans 6 is talking about here. So would you just reflect for the next few minutes? Kyle's going to play. We have a prayer team in the back that would love to pray with you. We don't pass an offering plate here. We have a box for tithes and donations and your gifts that... Our people give, I hope they give cheerfully and, and regularly and sacrificially. God loves a cheerful giver. Um, but if you're our guest today, your gift is to be here with us. So let's ponder on what we've heard. We'd love to pray with you in the back, and then we'll close out our time together. Kyle? When I feel my faith fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, he must hold me. hold me fast he will hold me fast for my savior loves me so he will hold me fast those he saves are his delight Christ will hold me fast, precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast, he'll not let my soul be lost, his promises shall last, bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast he will hold me fast he will hold me fast for my savior loves me so he will hold me fast for my life he bled and died Christ will hold me fast justice has been satisfied he will hold me fast 
Praise with Him to endless life. He will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight. When He comes at last, He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast for my sake. So he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. Thank you, Lord, that you will hold us fast, Father. And Lord, I pray that when we face temptation, when we face trials, we can know that we have a power that comes from you, Father. You give us strength and you give us courage, Lord. Let us rejoice that you have redeemed us. And you have saved us from death and sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Kyle. All right, Tom, Tommy mentioned this week we've got men's and uh, women's gatherings coming up. These are um, quarterly opportunities to gather with men and women uh, in, the conversation, uh, in the congregation uh, together. It's just a special time uh, we're not all in the same community group um, or discipleship group, so you can connect with other men and women who you might not get to see regularly, um, hear from them. We study together. We pray. Um, it's a great time to invite a friend. Uh, the women's gathering is uh, Tuesday, uh, February 15th at 6.30 at the Hearts, and then men's uh, 6.30 at the Clayton's. All of that address information is in the app or on the website under events. Uh, you can find it uh, right there, super simple. Uh, as he mentioned, community groups are on break that week, so don't show up to your community group. Um, we want to give you an opportunity to come, to come to these gatherings. And then today is the last day um, for signups to purchase a t-shirt. The, they're $7 a piece. You can scan that QR code or you can also find it on our website or the app. Um, that will close tonight at midnight. So if you are interested in purchasing a shirt, we do have kids sizes and adult sizes. Today is the last day to do that. And then lastly, um, I'm sure you saw in the lobby uh, at what we call the Connect Center, there's Valentine's set up. Those are for you to grab. The majority of our planned outreaches often go through community groups if you are involved in a community group. However, we do have other opportunities throughout the year as a full con congregation uh, for outreach. And one of our prayer focuses that we've been talking about these last couple of weeks um, is gospel conversations uh, and praying that God would put people in our, you know, in our lives and in our way that we could tell them about, you know, Jesus and why our hope is, why we have hope, especially at a time like this. There's a lot of people who don't have hope at all, don't know where to find it, don't know where to turn, and they're just kind of at rock bottom. These, 
you know, Valentine's, Tommy loves Lord of the Rings and I love the TV show, The Office. <laughs> Have you ever like seen that episode where Dwight, they're like going through the drive through and he gets a milkshake and then as a prank, he like throws the milkshake like back into the drive through at the like poor kid working at the, you know, working the drive through. And that's not how that goes. When we tell somebody about Jesus, it's not a, you know, throwing a, you know, track at them and saying, you know, better repent and good luck, you know, see you later. Um, it's a, an intentional conversation, and that's why we're praying um, for that all year, not just, you know, this weekend, not just for, you know, these outreaches. It's double whammy this weekend. Today is the Super Bowl, and tomorrow is Valentine's Day. People are people are going to be out. Um, there's going to be lots of opportunity, hopefully. Like I said, that's what we've been praying for. So really take an opportunity to think about um, who can I start this conversation with? That's all those hearts are. The hearts are not, you know, magical and they're not, you know, going to be the thing that, you know, saves someone, but it's a tool for you guys to take um, and to, you know, like I said, start a conversation with somebody um, in your life. So don't forget to grab one of those on your way out. There is a QR code, um, just so you know, on the back of those so that whoever you do give it to can find more information to, you know, contact you or contact us if they do have any questions. Um, and that's all that I have uh, for us today. So if you'd like to stand, um, we'll say our charge together. I am a witness. I have been called to minister to my neighborhood in both word and deed. God has given me his word to equip me, his spirit to empower me, and his love to motivate me. I pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent.